Hey everybody, welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. My name is Stephanie. There's going to be another lady on the podcast later on. Her name is also Stephanie. Uh, We tried to record an intro with both of us, but the gods of technology frowned upon that endeavor. So uh, for now, you just get me. You'll hear from her later. She and I were both born in Texas, and we love our home state very much. And we're hoping that through... uh, delving into the murder and mayhem that is our state's history, we can sort of reach out a hand of friendship from the state of Texas to the rest of the world. That hand may be bloody, but it's there. Now, Stephanie, the other Stephanie, not me, is an actual lawyer, so uh, she asked me to read a quick disclaimer up front. Ahem. Any legal discussion points are for entertainment purposes only and are not to be relied upon as legal advice. Also, we are going to get into some adult content here, so listener discretion is advised. So, all that being said, buckle up, buttercups, and let's get into it. hear about the clock tower sniper? If you're from Texas, yeah, you've heard about the clock tower sniper. We learn about it from birth, I feel like. I can't tell you the first time I heard about the time back in the 60s some guy took a rifle and climbed up to the top of the clock tower in the middle of the University of Texas campus and shot a bunch of people. This is just sort of atmospheric knowledge in the state of Texas. But Just because everybody's heard about it doesn't mean everybody's actually laid eyes on the tower itself. I personally didn't see it until I was in college. Uh, I wasn't attending UT. Uh, There are other schools in the Central Texas area, but don't tell UT that. And I visited the campus of UT and just walking down Guadalupe with some friends and I and one of them pointed over to the to the right and said, well, there's the tower. And I looked And I looked up and up and up. It was right there. It was like a giant had snuck up on me to loom up over my shoulder. At the time that the clock tower was built in the 1930s, it was the tallest building in the city of Austin. Uh, The tower is 328 feet tall at its its very top point. Uh, And just below that, there is a four-sided, perfectly square clock. Uh, And each of the faces of this clock are 12 feet across. It's a big old clock. Right under the clock is the observation deck, which hasn't been open uh, to visitors in many a year, and you'll find out why. But it was originally intended for visitors to the clock tower to be able to climb up and sort of gaze upon the city of Austin from on high. And not a lot of folks in Texas ever got a vantage point from up that high. Uh, Texas is a pretty flat state for the most part. We've got hills, but nothing that really rises to a bird's eye view like this observation deck did. It's 50 feet on a side, so you've got a 200 foot perimeter. And around that edge, there is a four foot tall limestone uh, wall, which I guess when it's a wall that's up on top of a tower, we call that a parapet. I don't know. It's a wall. Uh, And in that wall on each side, there are three rain spouts that point down from about floor level of the observation deck so that rainwater doesn't accumulate on the deck itself. 
There's also on this observation deck these giant floodlights that point up at the clock. Most of the time they're just there to illuminate the clock faces at night so you can see what time it is when the sun ain't shining. But should one of the University of Texas sports ball teams score a victory of some kind, uh, those floodlights will turn orange uh, because the school colors for the University of Texas are burnt orange and white. Before Austin suddenly grew skyscrapers about a decade and a half ago, you could see the clock tower from anywhere in town, and you can still see it from most of the northerly sections of town. It was a landmark. It was like the North Star, if North was in the middle of town. And from that observation deck, you could look down on the campus and the city immediately around for, for hundreds and hundreds of yards in, in all directions. Any building that was a campus building had a Spanish-style red ceramic tile roof, so those were easy to pick out. But then there would be apartments or all up and down Guadalupe Street, there was the drag. It was just a row of shops where people would go about their daily business, uh, doing their shopping and getting some lunch. It was a really unique and, and awe-inspiring perspective. And there was a steady traffic of, of tourists and students in and out of that tower all the way up to the observation deck or attending class in any one of the classrooms or offices that were in the 27 stories of tower below the observation deck. It would take a very special kind of mind to look at the clock tower and see not a feat of architectural engineering, not an iconic symbol of a place of, of liberal thought and higher learning, but rather a highly defensible military position, some place where one man with a gun could hold off an army if he wanted to. But on August 1st, 1966, it was precisely that kind of mind that held the entire city of Austin hostage for 96 minutes. Charles J. Whitman was born in 1941 in Lake Worth, Florida, the eldest child of C.A. and Margaret Whitman. Now, Charles's father, C.A., he was a real piece of work. He was what you might call a classic example of 1950s-era patriarchy. He didn't have no fancy education. He just pulled himself up by his bootstraps and made himself into the plumbing magnate of Lake Worth, Florida. He would openly admit to beating his wife, but says that he still loved her. He did, however, express regrets for being too soft on his children because he only ever beat them with his fists, his belt, or a paddle. C.A. was also a self-described gun fanatic. His boys were holding guns almost before they could walk. They would play with guns instead of, like, toys. And he made sure to teach all three of his boys how to shoot. C.A. would brag that his oldest boy, Charles, could plug a squirrel through the eye socket by the age of 16. Charles attended Catholic school, uh, where he was an altar boy. He also attended piano lessons until he was able to achieve concert-level skill, probably because his father would lay his belt across the piano so that Charles would have a constant visual reminder about the consequences of not practicing well. Charles also joined the Boy Scouts, where he advanced very quickly uh, and achieved national recognition for becoming the world's youngest Eagle Scout at the age of 12 and a half. At one point, Charles's parents got submitted him for an IQ test, and it came back 138.9. That's literally decimal points away from being a genius. He could have joined Mensa if he wanted to. By the time Charles was in high school, he had been living under his father's extreme disciplined control his entire life. So when it came to graduation night, he cut loose like any teenage boy would, and he got a little drunk with his friends. Then he came home a little drunk, and his father beat the ever-loving shit out of him and threw him into the swimming pool where Charles nearly drowned. 
It was after that incident that Charles decided he was going to run away and join the Marines, and he didn't tell anybody about this plan, except his mama. So at the age of 18 and two weeks, Charles joined the United States Marine Corps. Now he went into the military, an awkward, gangly teenager, just all knees and elbows. He came out a six-foot-tall, 198-pound Marine sharpshooter. The Marines thought so well of him, in fact, that they offered him a scholarship to attend college in the hopes of grooming him to become an officer. So Charles enrolled in the University of Texas, where he met a sweet, kind-hearted, small-town girl by the name of Kathy Leisner, who was there studying to become a schoolteacher. The two of them met, they fell in love, and they were married on August 17, 1962. Now, okay... Let's pause and take a look at this resume for a second, right? Um, you got this all-American boy with his blonde crew cut and his bright blue eyes, uh, who was a, comes from a good Catholic family, went to Catholic school, was an altar boy, uh, was an Eagle Scout by the age of 12 and a half, becomes a Marine sharpshooter, and is groomed to become an officer. If certain decisions hadn't been made over the course of the next few years, we'd probably have Florida Republican Senator Charles J. Whitman on our hands right now. But unfortunately, tragically, certain decisions were made over the course of the next few years. Decisions that ranged from the simply stupid to the truly mind-bogglingly monstrous. When Charles got to the University of Texas, all he wanted in the world was to seize this opportunity to achieve great things and finally surpass his father. But... What he got was his first real taste of freedom. Charles had gone from the strict control of his father's house to the strict control of the Marine Corps, and now he found himself unfettered by an external control source. So he did what many, many young college students do. He dicked around a lot. He didn't go to class. He just hung out with his friends and partied a lot. But with Charles Whitman, the party kind of had its own unique flavor to it. There was one particular night uh, when he decided that he wanted to go deer hunting. So he and a bunch of his friends grabbed his rifle, climbed into a car, and went out into the Texas Hill Country, regardless of whose property they might have been on. And Charles exhibited his Marine sharpshooter skill by taking down a white-tailed deer with one shot. They load the deer into the trunk of the car and uh, drive it back to campus. During this drive, uh, someone noticed that there was the head of a dead deer sticking out of the trunk of a car, and it was not deer season, so they called the police. The police located the car easily enough by the big puddle of blood underneath the trunk of the car, and then followed the trail of blood all the way into the boys' dormitory on campus, up the stairs, and into the bathroom where, I shit you not, Charles Whitman and his friends were fully dressing an adult deer in the shower. Now, he should have gotten into a great deal of legal trouble for that, but he managed to all shucks good old boy his way into just a minor fine. I don't know what they did with the deer. Charles also picked up quite the gambling habit. Turns out he was able to take that skill that children of abusive households sometimes develop, where they're able to put on whatever face is necessary to avoid parental rage, and translate that into a really good poker face. So when you're doing all of that instead of going to class, you're going to fail, and... The United States Marine Corps are uninterested in continuing to fund the higher education of somebody who fails all of his classes. So they revoked his scholarship and recalled him back to active duty and stationed him in North Carolina, leaving his wife behind to finish her education at UT. 
So Charles finds himself back with the Marines, but now he hates the Marines. The first time he went through, the Marines were shelter from his father. But now the Marines are a leash being yanked. So he just keeps on dicking around and drinking and gambling on the Marine base. Well, the Marines are unamused with that kind of behavior. So he found himself at a court-martial and slapped into the brig for 90 days. And this is where he started writing a journal. And in these journals, we can see the frustration that he has with himself for screwing up these chances that he had to finally to finally excel and be better than his father at something. This is also the only time that we see Charles having any kind of concern for what Kathy might think of him. He was worried that she would be angry, and she was, that her husband had gotten himself locked up for being a jackass. And so Charles wanted out of the Marines early, but he had to face the reality that he did not have the power to make that happen on his own, and he had to call his dad and ask his dad to pull some strings, make some phone calls, which he did, and it worked. And Charles got an honorable discharge from the Marines and returned to the University of Texas and his wife. Now, by now, Kathy has finished her, her teaching certification, and she is working as a high school biology teacher during the school year and a Southwestern Bell operator during the summer. Between Kathy's two jobs and the monthly allowance that his father sends, Charles's life is being supported, but not by him. Charles badly wants to change this circumstance, so he makes plans. He, he enrolls in classes at UT, but changes his major over and over again. He makes grand schemes and plans, throws himself into them, but follows through with nothing. And a lot of times when Charles finds himself in the need of a quiet place to think and brood, he goes to visit the clock tower on campus. All the way up to the, to the 28th floor, you sign in with the receptionist at the desk and go out onto the observation deck. And he was a frequent visitor. He was also a frequent user of a drug called dexedrine, which is an amphetamine. It's an upper. He would take it to keep himself awake for days at a time. Uh, I believe his record was five straight days with no sleep so that he could just spin his wheels into his grand plans faster and faster and not actually ever get anywhere or finish anything. It's in the middle of all of this stress stewing around in Charles's life that he gets a phone call from his mother. Margaret Whitman has finally decided that she has had enough of being beaten by her husband, and she's leaving him, and she has called her eldest boy to come and pick her up. So Charles does. He hops in the car and he drives 1,400 miles from Austin, Texas to Lake Worth, Florida, so he can help his mom pack up her stuff and leave his father's house. And as Margaret is moving her belongings from the house into Charles's car, at one point C.A. reaches out and tries to snatch the wedding rings right off of her hand. It doesn't work because Margaret's been wearing these rings for decades, so they're sort of so they sort of live on her fingers now, but I can only imagine that that scene, that moment, was just seared into Charles's mind. And so in March of 1966, Charles drives his mother away from his father's house for the last time and brings her back to Austin, where she gets settled into a nice apartment, gets herself a new job, and seems to enjoy life. So good for Margaret. Not so good for Charles. Because his father starts blowing up his phone. C.A. is calling every other day at least, begging Charles to help him get his wife back, screaming at Charles to help to tell his wife to come home. And this is every other day. And all Charles can do is endure it. Because he still relies on this man's financial support. You can't exactly tell someone to fuck off if they're paying your mortgage. And so the stress on Charles is ratcheted up tighter and tighter and tighter until finally Kathy manages in her gentle, sweet way to convince him to go to counseling. He's a University of Texas student. UT offers free counseling. Please go. 
And finally, he does, about three weeks after Margaret moves to Austin and found himself sitting in the office of Dr. Maurice Dean Heatley. Dr. Heatley's notes reflect a, a remarkable first impression of Charles. He describes Charles as a, quote, massive, muscular youth oozing with hostility. And so over the course of this appointment, Dr. Heatley and Charles discuss a lot of Charles's uh, stress points in his life, mainly his current relationship with his father. And Dr. Heatley rightly assesses that there's a lot of animosity there. But they go on to discuss what kind of thoughts or fantasies might be existing in Charles's mind. And Charles only really admits to one. He's got a recurring fantasy, he tells Dr. Heatley, about taking a deer rifle and climbing up to the top of the clock tower and shooting people. He said it explicitly, but Dr. Heatley dismissed it. He counseled a lot of college students, and he wrote this off as just another fit of hyperbolic melodrama. Never mind that anybody could just look at Charles Whitman and see that this young man was a very serious former Marine, not exactly the kind of person who would be prone to fits of drama. Now, the University of Texas Psychiatric Department policy offered three options to Dr. Heatley in this situation. Option one, determine that the patient is not a psychiatric case and send them on their way. Option two, determine that the patient is a psychiatric case and advise them to make an appointment to seek further treatment. Or option three, determine that the patient is a psychiatric case and have them involuntarily committed for evaluation and treatment. Unfortunately for the city of Austin generally, and 16 people specifically, Dr. Heatley chose option two. He told Charles, make an appointment, we'll follow up. Charles never sees Dr. Heatley again. Months go by of just continued ratcheting up stress. CA is calling every other day, at least, sometimes more often. So Charles just goes spinning into summertime, riding a tornado fueled by daddy issues and amphetamines. Until July 31st, 1966, when CA calls and tells Charles he's cutting off the money. No more allowance for you. No more support for your mother. That's it. I'm done. If you're not going to help put my marriage back together, I'm not financially supporting any of y'all anymore. And I imagine in that moment, a kind of terrifying calm settling over Charles. And in that moment, reality would crystallize around a plan. He's a guy that makes a lot of plans, but this plan, born in this moment of clarity and calm, the likes of which he has not experienced in months, something that he has always wanted to do for years, and now he finally has a reason. Well, this time, finally, Charles is going to follow a plan through, and he's going to finish it. Now, we here at Outlaws and Scorned Women value the sanctity of human life. Therefore, it is our official position that anyone who takes up arms against innocent civilians forever relinquishes their right to be spoken of in a respectful manner in a podcast. So, this asshole decides to go shopping. Charles goes to 7-Eleven and buys up a bunch of snacks, basically canned meats and packaged sweet rolls, shit like that. Then he goes to the Army Surplus Store, where he picks up a big old Bowie knife and a set of binoculars. A little while later in the day, he meets his mom and his wife while they take a lunch break from their jobs, and everything seems fine. Then he goes back home, and at 6.45 p.m., he sits down to type out a letter. Now, I am not inclined to give a mass murderer's words any more voice than they already get, 
but parts of this letter are relevant, so I will read you excerpts. If you would like to find the full letters, uh, I recommend reading A Sniper in the Tower, The Charles Whitman Murders by Gary M. Laverne. It's an excellent read and the primary source uh, for this entire episode. <clears throat> Sunday, July 31st, 1966, 6.45 p.m. I don't really understand myself these days. I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. I talked with a doctor once for about two hours to convey to him my fears that I felt some overwhelming violent impulses. After one session, I never saw the doctor again, and since then I have been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. After my death, I wish that an autopsy would be performed on me to see if there is any visible physical disorder. It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight after I pick her up from work at the telephone company. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. I don't know whether it is selfishness, you think, or if I don't want her to have to face the embarrassment my actions would surely cause her. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible. Because he's a gentleman. It's at this point in the letter that he gets interrupted. We know it's at this point in the letter because he writes in the margins, friends interrupted. Now it's a hot Texas summer evening. His friends have come over to see if he'd like to go out for some ice cream. And so he casually sets aside his typewriter full of death and murder and goes out for ice cream with his friends. And his friends would later note that that evening, they had never seen Charles so calm and cheerful and collected. After ice cream, Charles returns back home to finish off the rest of the letter with some bullshit about how he blames everything on the fact that his dad used to hit him and his mom. Anyway, at about 9.30 p.m. that night, Charles picks Kathy up from work and takes her home, and she goes to bed. About midnight, Charles calls his mom, Margaret, and asks if he can come over. See, Margaret's apartment has air conditioning and his house does not, and it's crazy hot, so he asks his mom if he can come cool off in her air conditioning for a little while before he tries to go to bed, and Margaret Whitman has never been one to deny her baby boy anything, and so she agrees. And Charles comes over to her apartment, and as soon as they get inside, Charles attacks his mother. We don't 100% know exactly how he killed her, but it's believed that he strangled her with a length of rubber with a length of rubber hose. What we do know for sure is that he smashed her hand, probably by slamming it in a door, but whatever he did, it was hard enough to dent her rings deep into her flesh. As one final fuck you to his dad, try and get her rings off now, asshole. Then he scoops up her body, places her in bed, and tucks the flowered bedspread up under her chin. Then he sits down with a yellow legal pad, and writes another note. Again, I'm not reading the whole thing because fuck this guy, but here are the relevant bits. Monday, August 1st, 1966, 12.30 a.m. To whom it may concern, I have just taken my mother's life. I am very upset over having done it. <laughs> the intense hatred I feel for my father is beyond description. My mother gave that man the 25 best years of her life. I am truly sorry that this is the only way I could see to relieve her sufferings, but I think it was best. If there exists a God, let him understand my actions and judge me accordingly. Charles J. Whitman. So he finishes his note and then lays it on his dead mother's belly on the bed and leaves the apartment, taping a do not disturb sign to the door on his way out. By 3 a.m., Charles is back home. We don't know if Charles took one last look at his wife as she slept peacefully. All we do know is that he took the bowie knife that he had bought just the day before and stabbed his sleeping wife in the chest five times. She was killed instantly. Then he pulled the blankets up to her chin and returned to his preparations. And like, 
Can we take a moment to pause and breathe here? So, so these letters, right? They very clearly and meticulously explain that he super that he did it. There's no mystery. Charles Whitman killed these women, and he is confessing to it in writing. And in each of these letters, he makes the case that there might be something wrong with his brain, and that he has all of these thoughts and violent impulses beyond his control, and also he hates his dad. He hates his dad a whole lot. Okay, so it seems to me almost as if he's laying in a contingency plan for in case he gets taken alive after what he plans to do, so maybe he can plead insanity. Food for thought, it's just my theory. Whew, okay, back to the murder, here we go. So Charles assesses his arsenal of weapons and supplies and decides that he could use some more guns and ammo, so this asshole goes shopping again. He's smart about it, though. He spreads out his purchases over three different stores, presumably because he thought that maybe renting a dolly and buying a shotgun, a rifle, and 700 rounds of ammunition might arouse somebody's suspicion. As it is, every shop he went to, the clerks made friendly conversation. Hey, buddy, what are you buying this for? And he told each and every one of them that he was going to go hunt hogs in Florida. Once Charles gets all his new toys back home, he packs everything up. He's got a Bowie knife, three handguns, one shotgun, two powerful long-range rifles, one, uh, one with a powered scope, and enough food, water, and supplies to camp out for several days. And he packs it all up into a metal footlocker and an extra bag, because it's a lot. Then he pulls on a set of blue coveralls over his clothes, which has got to be sweltering given the heat of the day. It's about 96 degrees by the time all of this is going down. Anyway, he loads everything into the car, and he drives on up to campus. The fact that he's got these coveralls on and he's wheeling a dolly around with some nondescript equipment on it seems to act as a disguise for him. He's a, he could be a maintenance worker. He could be a janitor. Nobody knows. So nobody questions it when he wheels all of this stuff into the first floor lobby of the clock tower building. He tries to operate the elevator, but, um, but it's turned off. So the receptionist down there turns it on for him so he can ride up. And he looks at her and smiles and says, thank you, ma'am. You don't know how happy this makes me. <laughs> anyway, he rides up, uh, he rides up the elevator to the 28th floor of the observation deck, steps off the elevator into the lobby, and we don't 100% know what happened here, but I have to assume that the reason he killed the lobby receptionist is because she recognized him. He'd spent a lot of time up there as a student, you know, before he decided to become a murderer, and the janitor disguise probably hadn't worked. Regardless, he smashed the back of her head in with the butt of a shotgun and dragged her body behind a couch. At that moment, when he's stashing her body, a young couple who had been out on the observation deck stepped in out of the sun into the lobby. And there they saw this reddish-brown stain on the floor, with a long smear leading over to behind the couch. And they thought, oh my, somebody must be varnishing the floor, and politely stepped over it. And then, standing up from behind the couch, they see a, a large young man holding two guns. And... <sighs> Bless their little 1966 hearts. They don't think this man has just killed someone and hidden, and hidden the body behind the couch. No, they think, oh, he must be here to shoot the pigeons off of the observation deck. They smile at him and say hi. He smiles back, says, hi, how you doing? And then they just get on the elevator and leave, and he lets them go. Those two kids are the luckiest people in the city of Austin on this day. So Charles grabs the receptionist's desk and shoves it in front of the stairwell that leads up from the 27th floor. Right then, a family of four tourists were coming up the, the stairs. They were on their way to the observation deck. So Charles gets a hold of that shotgun that he just bought a couple of hours before, aims it over his, his makeshift barricade, and just starts firing. Two members of that family die instantly. All four go tumbling down the stairs in a welter of bullets and blood. 
Noise has been made. Shots have been fired. It's time to move. He goes out onto the observation deck with his high-powered rifle with the scope and starts walking around that 200-foot perimeter that gives him full visibility over hundreds and hundreds of yards of campus and people and streets. And he starts looking for a target. And he sees one. There is a young woman, eight months pregnant, and she's just a little under 200 yards away, walking down the street with her boyfriend. So Charles aims, and he fires, and shoots her through the belly. To be clear, this was a young man who, could, who by the age of 16, could plug a squirrel through the eye socket. He was a ranked Marine sharpshooter. Let us not think for one moment that he missed his target. Charles Whitman hit exactly what he was aiming for when he killed the baby inside that woman's belly. And again, when her boyfriend reached down to help her when she fell, and he shot him straight through the chest. For the next 20 or so minutes, Charles Whitman operated completely unchecked, just raining bullets and chaos and death and confusion down from his perch 280 feet up in the air on this clock tower. That's how long it took for people to even realize what was happening, where the shots were coming from. It wasn't just the fact that he was so up high and at an angle, it was that his range and his accuracy was phenomenally huge. He was able to shoot people at the base of the tower and as far away as 500 yards. That's five football fields. There was a man who was getting a haircut at a barber shop a little over 500 yards away from the tower. Heard the ruckus, went to go stand in the doorway of the barber shop and got shot in the shoulder. Not the head for a, not the head or the chest for a, for a kill shot. He was just wounded in the shoulder, which means that at 500 yards, Charles Whitman's accuracy was only off by about four, six inches. Yeah. Now, I'm not trying to celebrate the man's skill. I'm just pointing out how incredibly evil his accuracy and efficiency was. The observation deck had 50 feet on a side, so he had 200 feet of perimeter to walk around and pick his targets. And he followed his marine training. One shot, one kill. He never lingered. He would shoot one, maybe two targets, and then keep start walking. Find another target. Shoot, kill, move. Shoot, kill, move. He operated with extreme efficiency. And it was devastating. Charles would specifically target victims in the middle of an open space. If he left them wounded, they would lay there on the searing hot Texas pavement and play dead in the hopes that he wouldn't come back and shoot them again. But then people would rush out to help them because that's what people do, and Charles would shoot them too. Finally, after about 20 minutes of this, people started figuring out where the shooting was coming from. And this being Texas, people started to get their guns. Now, I think it's important to note that in 1966, having a gun was not, it didn't have the same connotation that it has today. Owning a gun was like owning any other tool, like owning a hammer or owning a saw. It was something that did a job. Some of them might be collector's items, but still, it had a function and a purpose. It wasn't a, a status symbol or a political statement or a phallic external masculinity projection. So the local population of Texans, in response to being fired upon, ran and got their guns and started shooting back. And look, I am not a fan of the good guy with a gun theory of mass murder response. But in this particular case, with the shooter being safely 280 feet up in the air, having people with hunting rifles down on the ground shooting up at him forced Charles Whitman to hide. He didn't have free reign all over that observation deck because he had to avoid being fired upon by the citizens on the ground. So his only option was to start firing through the rain spouts in the walls. This didn't stop him from taking any more victims, but it did slow him down a lot. Now, you may be asking, where are the police in all this? Well, 
the response to the situation was, compared to today, very slow. Remember, at the time, this is 1966, there is no 911. 911 wouldn't even be a thing until 1968. There's also no SWAT teams. The only response was either citizens or police officers who were men in shirt sleeves. There's no body armor. They have a service revolver and a shotgun. No long-range rifles, nothing. And also, there's no EMS. Ambulances at the time were operated by funeral homes, mortuaries. So there, it, when you see news footage of this incident, you'll see p injured people being loaded into the back of hearses. And it seems a little dark, but that was the only option. There were no, there were no emergency systems. And Charles Whitman, in his brutal efficiency, would wait for an ambulance to get loaded and then shoot the driver. The point is, nothing like this had ever happened before. There was no plan in place. There was no training for this. An open call went out for all police officers to converge on the clock tower at campus, either to, to direct traffic or get civilians to safety or, I don't know, find some way to get to the tower and put a stop to this. And only a few, and I mean literally a few, were brave or lucky enough to manage to zigzag their way across open space and get to the first floor of that clock tower. One of those police officers was Jerry Day. And he found a man waiting in the lobby by the name of Alan Crum. Alan Crum was a university employee, and he knew the layout of the tower. And those two were joined by two police officers who have combined between them the most Texas names I have ever heard in my life, Ramiro Martinez and Houston McCoy. And these four guys look at each other and realize they're it. There's no backup coming. There's no plan. If anybody's going to deal with this guy, it's got to be the four of them. Alan Crum says, look, I can take you up there. I know the way. I know how to get the elevator working. We can do this. And so the other officers deputize Alan on site, hand him a gun, and they get in the elevator and ride upstairs. Ramiro Martinez, a devout Catholic, was fairly certain that this was a one-way trip for him. Whatever happened on the 28th floor, he was probably going to die. So he said a prayer for forgiveness for his sins on the way up. The four of them reached the observation deck and split up to try and find the shooter. Ramiro Martinez and Houston McCoy step onto the observation deck and turn, and there he is. A massive, muscular youth in blue coveralls, sighting his rifle down one of the rain spouts. And Martinez in that moment knows he has picked a target and he's about to squeeze off that, that trigger. There is no time for a stand down. There is no time for a put your hands up. Somebody is about to die if they don't do something. So Ramiro Martinez fires a shot that turns Whitman, and then he and Houston McCoy just pour lead into Charles Whitman. The shot that was officially the cause of his death took him in the head. And just like that, 96 minutes after it started, the nightmare was over. The sniper was dead. At the end of the day, Charles Whitman was responsible for inflicting crippling wounds on dozens of people and taking 16 lives. Margaret Whitman, his mother. Kathy Whitman, his wife. Edna Elizabeth Townsley. She was the observation deck receptionist. Martin Gabor and Marguerite Lamport, two members of the family coming up the stairs that Charles shot before he stepped out onto the observation deck. Robert Boyer, a mathematician, was shot in the back as he walked across campus. Thomas Aquinas Ashton was shot in the chest on his way to meet friends for lunch. Karen Griffith was a 17-year-old student at, coincidentally, the same high school where Kathy Whitman taught biology. She was shot through the chest. And Thomas Carr was shot through the spine as he reached out to try to help Karen. David Gunby was on his way to the library to return a forgotten book when a bullet passed through his arm and into his abdomen. 
Claudia Rutt and Paul Sontag heard shots being fired and tried to take cover behind a construction barricade, but Charles Whitman shot Paul through the mouth and killed him instantly. When Claudia reached out to try to help Paul, he shot her through the chest. Roy Schmidt took cover behind a car about 500 yards from the tower, but after about 30 minutes, he emerged from cover and was shot through the abdomen. Billy Paul Speed was a police officer on site, taking cover behind a building. He was shot through a gap in the masonry. Harry Walchuk was stepping out of a store on Guadalupe Street and was shot through the chest. Thomas Ekman was shot through the chest and killed instantly as he reached out to help his pregnant girlfriend, Claire Wilson, who had just been shot through the belly. That bullet took the life of Charles Whitman's first sniper victim, baby boy Wilson, Claire's unborn son. Claire Wilson survived her wounds, and somehow, like so many of the survivors of that day, she found the courage to pick up the pieces of a life shattered by Charles J. Whitman. The aftermath of this shooting was, as they always are, a study in the resilience of the human spirit. Once the all-clear was sounded and word got out that the sniper was dead, people poured out of hiding. They came rushing out of, out of stores and out from behind cars and trees or, or wherever they were hunkered down to escape the bullets and started grabbing up any victims that were still on the street and rushing them off to help. Then people filled up the courtyard at the base of the tower. Just this enormous crowd of nearly a thousand people, all standing in an intense, eerie silence. This crowd stood shoulder to shoulder in this heat and stared at the tower. They wanted to see the sniper brought out. They needed to see it. And if you look out across this crowd, you could see every here and there popping up like, like deadly daisies or the barrels of guns. Citizens holding on to the rifles that they had used to fire up at the tower to keep the sniper at bay. All of these guns now held responsibly with safeties on and barrels pointing at the sky. But the crowd did not get to see the sniper wheeled out. Instead, they saw a deeply shaken police officer, Ramiro Martinez, with a glassy-eyed thousand-yard stare, a man who had just faced down death. And then the crowd watched as the victims were wheeled out, the murdered teenage boy and his aunt from the stairs and the two other members of his family wounded and bloodied, the receptionist from the observation deck. Charles Whitman got wheeled out the back, I think in an attempt by the police to spare the crowd the temptation to turn into an angry mob. Meanwhile, the hospital is a war zone. And I mean hospital, singular. There is only one hospital in the city of Austin at this time, and it has a pretty small emergency room. It's only normally staffed with one doctor, a couple of nurses, and a whole bunch of, of interns and students. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, they got flooded with victim after victim after victim with horrendous wounds that they, that they were not equipped to deal with. These weren't civilian wounds. These were war zone wounds. You had interns in the loading bay trying to make triage decisions on patients that were coming in one every two minutes. Word quickly got out around the city of Austin that the emergency room was understaffed, and every doctor in town rushed to the scene and offered to volunteer their services. They had like 58 doctors, family practitioners, pediatricians, uh, dentists, anybody who knew how to, how to suture a wound showed up to that ER to help. And at the blood bank, people lined up down the street in the searing midday sun, mothers with babies on their hips standing in line with soldiers that poured out of Camp Mabry to come and donate blood. The community rallied as best they could, as we always do after tragedies like this. 
The governor of Texas at the time, Governor Connolly, ordered a blue ribbon commission. He wanted to put the best and brightest minds he could find onto the task of finding out why this happened, how this happened, what kind of early warning signs could we possibly find to prevent this from ever happening again. And a bunch of very qualified doctors and psychiatrists and behavioral scientists, all these people got together and studied all of the evidence they could. They studied the report from the autopsy that was performed on Charles Whitman and discovered that, yes, he did in fact have a brain tumor about the size of a pecan. But they also determined that that brain tumor was not in a place in his brain that would have affected his mood or his behavior in any way. And that his conduct during the shooting, the way that he so meticulously planned everything leading up to the time that he started firing, and the malicious accuracy and efficiency of the way that he fired every single shot, were clearly signs of a man who was under no neurological impairment whatsoever. Ultimately, the Blue Ribbon Commission determined that without a thorough psychiatric evaluation of Charles Whitman, they would never be able to know exactly why he did it or be able to determine how they could have predicted that it would happen. Ultimately, this incident on August 1st, 1966 was the first mass shooting in the United States. Prior to this time, murder was something that happened in the dark, uh, and it was personal. It was one-on-one. -on -one. Or maybe it was like a, a sexy mafia thing, but it was never on a massive scale. It was never in a public safe space under the bright light of day. Charles Whitman changed the game on violence. And because of what he did, law enforcement agencies across the nation saw a need to create a squad specifically for sudden violent situations, a special weapons and tactics squad, if you will, or SWAT. Also, the sudden emergency response needs may have been what inspired the creation of an actual EMS system, taking the uh, management of ambulances out of the hands of funeral homes. But for such a, a horrifically historic incident, we don't have, we really don't have any closure. Charles Whitman died on the scene. He didn't get to go to trial. But what if he had? Would there have been any justice? Would he have been able to hide behind those crazy-ass notes that he wrote and propped up on the bodies of his mother and his wife? I don't know. Luckily, we have a lawyer we can ask about that. Look, no ice. <laughs> is that what, what befell you last time? <laughs> but but this is gonna it's gonna tempt me at some point. Just so you you're know. just gonna shoot, 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 <laughs> your little beverage maraca. Um, right. So here's the thing: we're gonna start with my idiot question. Okay. Which is, it seems to me, somebody who knows shit about law stuff, I only know what I see on TV, that he was doing his best to set up for in case he got taken alive for being able to plead insanity with all the letters that he wrote. Okay. So I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't read the, the letters. I didn't really um, delve into that. However, um, there's this common misconception that people are just rampant, getting away with murder mm -hmm. and pleading insanity. Right. Yeah. And getting away with it. Yeah. Getting off and acquitted all the charges. The, the actuality in Texas, and um, I'm looking at it from the perspective of the law today, is only a narrow select group mm -hmm. of um, defendants really can uh, avail themselves to the insanity defense. So what does it take to qualify as not guilty by reason of insanity? Okay, so the, um, the defense mm -hmm. is um, at the time of the offense, the um, defendant would have to show that the conduct was the result of a severe mental disease or defect that caused him to not know his conduct was wrong. Okay. 
And so um, the, I was looking at some of the cases and that knowledge of something being, the, the conduct being wrong mm-hmm. legally or morally. Oh, okay. So, so not even just like be, the law, but like God says bad or right, whatever, like I know whatever your moral compass. Wrong, I know it's you know, mm-hmm. societally wrong. I know it's legally wrong. Okay. Um, it seems to me that you have mm-hmm. to be so compromised as to not believe at the time of your conduct that what you were doing was wrong. Okay. And so that means even cases where, um, where the defendant was completely deluded, mm-hmm. you know, they believed Satan was telling them to do a horrible thing. Right. If there is evidence that they knew it was a horrible thing, mm-hmm. that it was illegal, it was wrong, even if they felt so overwhelmingly compelled to do it, that doesn't qualify as insanity, mm-hmm. you know, under Texas law. So you can't even just say, oh, the devil, the devil made me do it. That's right. As long as you can show, like, as it can be shown through evidence of your actions that you damn well knew that what you were doing was wrong, it doesn't matter if you think the devil told you to do it, you still knew it was wrong. That's right. Therefore, you are still guilty. That's that's correct. So um, there are some stories where um, people have believed that they were trying to rid, you know, the, the victim of the evil that resided in them, or they believed they were personally possessed. Mm-hmm. And they would not prevail on the insanity defense when there was evidence to the contrary, that they knew what they were doing was wrong. Mm -hmm. They knew they were acting in a way that was morally reprehensible. And um, it's interesting. So you could be, by other standards, you know, what we would understand is crazy. Clinically insane. Yes. You have, you know, um, you clearly are not capable of acting and fitting within society, but you are not, um, you are not entitled to have your um, conduct excused by law. Okay. So had he perhaps gone to this psychiatrist or psychologist more than once, they may have been able to see a pattern of severe daddy issues. Um, just a lot. <laughs> that's all I can identify it as is daddy issues, uh, but a lot of rage oozing with hostility and see that as, as a series of psychiatric cases mm-hmm. with this guy Um and we might have eventually seen a pattern of actual m- mental illness being diagnosed. But you think he still proved through his actions that he knew what he was doing was wrong? I mean, I, I would say there were indications that he knew what he was doing was wrong. He tried to conceal his conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, he tried, you know, the um, taping on the door, mom's ill. Yeah. Don't go in. Um, his letters indicated, or at least the excerpts, seemed to indicate that he knew he was planning something that at the very least was illegal. Mm-hmm. You know, he was av- trying to avoid detection. Right. He lied when he bought the ammunition. That's right. Um, so I didn't see anything that indicated that he, mm-hmm. he didn't understand how to tell the difference. Because like, if he truly believed that uh, what he was doing, like if he had, if he thought that what he was doing was not wrong, then the guys would have been like, why are you buying all this ammo? And he'd been like, well, I'm going to go up on the clock tower and shoot a bunch of fucking people instead of telling them I'm going to Florida to shoot hogs. Yeah. Which but he didn't his... say, you know, don't worry, they're going to turn into butterflies. Yeah. This is all fine. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, hurts my soul. So, and I think in some jurisdictions, the aver- there is a version of the insanity defense where you have this irresistible impulse. Mm. It's like you are not in control. You can't be said to have been... You know, um, that you acted in a way that was entirely of your own volition. Like it's almost involuntary, involuntary right. violence. Um, and or your mental disease <laughs> or defect is so strong 
mm-hmm. that it obliterates the same kind of intent. But that's not something that exists but, in Texas. So Texas has what's understood to be a pretty narrow standard. It is mm-hmm. that you have to, at the time you engaged in that conduct, you had to not understand the difference between okay. right or wrong or that what you were doing was wrong. And in Texas, if that is the case, then you would be acquitted mm. of the, the charges. You'd be not guilty by reason of insanity. Interestingly, I've learned that there are other jurisdictions where you could be guilty but insane. Okay. And the I think the legal effect would be different. You know, um, you would possibly still... incarcerated in a different facility. Right. And I think the same thing with um, not guilty by reason of insanity. You're not just going to walk down the block and head home and eat a burger. Right. Like you are going to um, be committed to a facility. So the state is going to continue to monitor you. That's right. And it looks like you're still going to be under the um, charge of the court. They're going to have to review reports and determine Mm -hmm. if you're going to continue residing in a facility or what type of residence, like if it's going to be an outpatient or an inpatient commitment. Mm -hmm. And I believe the standard in Texas is it would be for the same length of time as your sentence could have been. Oh. Is how long the state would have the ability to monitor. So you're not guilty, but you're also not free. Right. You're not just living your best life outside (laughs) with your acquittal. Footloose and fancy free, as it were. There's definitely misconception, I think, about how that works. So you're acquitted, but you're not. So what? Okay. Define acquitted, because does that just mean not guilty? That means, yeah, that means you are not, you're not guilty of the charges. Okay. Or, you know, you were charged and then mm-hmm. the determination is okay. you are not guilty of the charges. The verdict is that. But in those cases, mm-hmm. if it's not guilty by reason of insanity, it's, it's a little more, there's more procedure there. Mm-hmm. It's a little more complicated than you just leave the courtroom and you're done. Okay. Um, you know, and it's interesting because the other side of the inquiry is um, competence. Mm-hmm. Your competence to stand trial. Yeah. Okay. So when Tell me about are, that. That is um, a deter- the determination has to be made up front whether or not you are competent to stand trial. So that means that the charges and the proceedings can be brought against you. And if you are determined to be not competent, mm-hmm. usually in that case, you will be committed for a period of time until you are competent. Hmm. And that um, competence, we're all presumed by law in Texas right. to be competent. You know, and that means that you can rationally perceive and understand the charges and the facts of the charges against you. You can meaningfully participate in Mm -hmm. your own defense. You have to be able to consult your attorney and engage meaningfully in that process. You have to understand that you are on trial. Right. You have to understand that you're on trial. You also have to be able to participate in certain decisions. Like lawyers will analyze the facts and the law Mm -hmm. and create strategies, but But ultimately they they need the client. They work for the client. That's right. And the client has to be able to either facilitate by Mm -hmm. providing the information. They have Mm -hmm. to have an understanding to comprehend and then retell Mm -hmm. the vital and pertinent information to their their attorney. And so you have to be, you know, competent in order to go through this adversarial proceeding. Right. Um, So you need to even know that it's happening. That's right. Yeah, okay. It feels like, in Texas at least, there's no justice in punishing someone who doesn't understand that they're being punished. So the pursuit is justice here. Right. And well, it seems like. That's right. And to, to proceed against somebody who has, who is incompetent to mm-hmm. understand the charges or the, the punishment mm-hmm. that um, 
you're right, that is not a pursuit of justice. Right. As, there's so, no fun in that. There's <laughs> no like, fun in that. Like, well, don't, and, don't kick a puppy. Come on. It has to do, too, with um, all criminal law. When um, you're charged with particular conduct, mm-hmm. the law always has an intent element there. You have to have the mental capacity to engage in the crime. Mm-hmm. There has to be an intention or a knowledge. So it wasn't like an accidental, like, okay, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It had to, like, you had to mean it. Okay, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. So mm-hmm. with crimes, when you're charged, that's right. It's not only did you do the thing, but mm-hmm. you intended that thing be done. You meant to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, competence is an inquiry that can be raised by the judge even. Mm-hmm. He can evaluate the, the circumstances and say, hey, we need to determine mm-hmm. if this person is competent to stand trial. And that is that from the outset determination that you have the rational understanding mm-hmm. in the present time to stand trial. The insanity defense looks retrospectively at the time of the incident. Right. So you have to be insane, unaware of right and wrong at the moment you did it. But you could have been like medicated and therapied back to an an even keel by the time trial is happening. That doesn't matter. We're talking about what you did. That's correct. In an alternate universe where he's taken alive. And he gets taken to trial. And if in your theoretical hypothetical, yeah. all the ethicals opinion, um, was he, w- w- do you think he was crazy? So personally, I don't looking at mm-hmm. all of the indicators we have because things can be proven um, through direct evidence. Things can be proven circumstantially. Mm-hmm. And I don't see evidence of not knowing mm-hmm. the difference between right and wrong. In fact, I think there are these indicators that he knew. Um, I think you can be psychopathic mm. and still know yeah. that something is, even if you don't have a line. Yeah. Even if you, you don't know. think it should be wrong, right. you know that it is wrong. That's right. Even if you feel nothing for it, mm-hmm. I think you have a rational understanding that it has been told to you yeah. and that you are operating within a society that says this is the line and you're not supposed to cross it. Cause he went to great lengths to not be stopped because he knew that society would go, Hey, you with all of the guns going towards the clock tower, That's maybe right. don't do that. And he, you know, he was so methodical in his recounting of all of his behaviors and actions. Yeah. I, I didn't see in there a delusion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I am doing this because it is right and I am supposed to. And Or because the because a purple squirrel on my shoulder told me to do it. Right. None of, none of that. Right. He just, just did it. In fact, he says repeatedly in his notes, I don't know why I'm doing this. I just did it. Right. Uh, Kathy was great. She was the best wife a man could ask for. I stabbed her five times. Anyway, we move on. Like that was, and, and he was sa- very casual. The shame and the embarrassment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think those reflect an understanding yeah. that his actions were going to be looked upon as wrong. And it's interesting, the operation of the defense um, of insanity to, mm-hmm. that you would be acquitted, you are, um, as a defendant, basically acknowledging that you did it. Mm. So, um, so self-defense not- would be a similar, like, mm. I did that, yeah, but I was justified because I mm-hmm. had a reasonable and I was in fear for my life. Insanity is, <laughs> I did that, mm-hmm. But at the time I did that, I did not I didn't know, know I wasn't supposed to. That's right. And then um, Texas law also, it's just an interesting side note. That's all because, you know, you have to prove the elements of the crime if you're the state. Mm-hmm. And um, one of those is the intent. Right. And now, is intent different from motive? 
Yes. So sorry. Motive is interrupting you. you. Go go go. <laughs> the intent is um, that would be your mental state at the time you committed the act. It you know um, each statute mm-hmm. will tell um, will indicate what the state has to show whether you did something intentionally and that is part of the state's burden. When you raise an affirmative defense, mm-hmm. now you have the burden to show insanity. So is an affirmative defense when you say, I did it, but let me tell you why it's okay that I did. Right. So here's the thing, though. The big question that everybody had after this happened was why? Mm-hmm. Why did he do this? We badly, like as a society, as a, as a human race, needed to know why. But does that matter? So ultimately, no. I mean, as a matter of what the state has to prove to Mm -hmm. prosecute someone like him for a crime like that, Mm -hmm. um, the physical evidence, the all of the accumulated evidence that we have seen from, you know, the historical record in this case would show that he did it, that he intended Mm -hmm. for it to happen. And um, intent is interesting. You can do something intentionally, meaning I wanted that result. You could do it. I knew that that result was going to happen. And in his case, I think both are true. So legally speaking, then, because we've talked about this before, um, motive is not important. Like, so no, motive is great for, for context. Yeah, it's good for the narrative. Like, it's, we need it. That's right. And I think it weighs. It allows for inferences. Yeah. It allows for you to go, oh, that makes all of this other evidence make mm-hmm. sense. But, no, the state doesn't have to prove your motive. Can you imagine if... <laughs> The state had to prove why you did had some to prove, wacky, terrible crime. Then you're starting to get into the state having to prove the thoughts in your head. That's right. And then you could just say, well, no, I wasn't thinking that. And then what evidence is there of the contrary? Right. You're on camera and, you know, there were five witnesses and they have yeah. the ballistics and everything else. I we see. saw you, dude. There's footage of you up on top of that clock tower with your rifle. People got up there and saw, like, you totally and did it. nobody goes, ah, ha, ha, but you don't know why I did it. That's yeah. not... That's, That's not, not a gotcha. But like crime. every time, every crime show everywhere, it's means, motive, and opportunity. Right. He had means and opportunity. There it was. Like those, that's the holy trinity of what you need to prove it. But you're telling me that crime shows on TV have lied? So I think that crime shows are hitting that as an investigative tool. I need them to be real. If you, <laughs> because I don't Tell know. me Ice-T I mean, is truly a policeman. <laughs> Donnie Wahlberg. I mean, come on. <laughs> It's great. I think as an investigative tool, and I'm assuming because I've seen it in in other more realistic contexts, we look at means, motive, and opportunity. I think that um, helps you analyze mm-hmm. where your leads are. That so helps is that, you analyze how to try to solve a mystery. So that's more like the investigative end, not the legal end. Right. Once you go to court, mm-hmm. what the state has to prove are the elements of the crime as written in the statutes, in the criminal oh. statute. But motive... You know, while it's something that may come up, mm-hmm. it's not it's not in there. It's not written that you have to show or prove huh. the motive for doing. So like, if you've got somebody on camera, clearly, because there's plenty of cameras pointed at the top of this clock tower, like that's clearly him. We have many a witness saying that that is Charles Whitman up there. We can place you there. It doesn't matter why you did it. We know you did it. But yeah, motive as a general rule is it's not one of the... Did you do it? And what was your mental state at the time of doing it? But I need it. (laughs) I need to know what the motivation is. Because I think we need it, particularly in the the aftermath of a tragedy like this. We got to know why so that we can understand it, so we can process it. And I think that's where the brain tumor really came into play for a lot of people, particularly the families 
of Charles Whitman and his wife. Was the tumor made him do it? It was the tumor. It was an aberration. Well, and it I was, think it's still, I mean, if that gives you comfort at the end of the sure. day, sure. Um, I mean, people, who, who am I to begrudge that? I, I haven't experienced a tragedy on that level. He seemed like he was a person it was at the rotten intersection of, you know, nurture and nature. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because like lots of people get hit by their dad. Lots of people uh, you know, flunk out of school. <laughs> lots of people spin their wheels as an undeclared major and find themselves in their mid twenties having no idea what to do with their lives, and they don't climb a clock tower and kill people. That's right, and a lot of people with all variety of mental illness do not mm-hmm. harm other people. Right, I think because a lot of people have theories as to why, as to what made him do it, and I think. What theory you hear depends on who you ask. If you ask uh, anti-gun people, they're going to tell you it's because he was raised in a gun culture. And that like the guns, uh, his ease of access and his ease of use of guns made him do it. If you ask um, people who are opposed to pharmaceuticals, they'll say that it was the methamphetamines, not methamphetamines, just amphetamines. There was no meth. Uh, it was the dexedrine. It was the uppers and downers roller coaster that he was riding for so long. That made him do it. If you ask child advocates, they'll say it was the abuse in his childhood. I don't know about you. And you can say <laughs> what, I what you think it is. I think that he was just fucking evil. And he had an evil idea he couldn't get out of his head. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think there's a satisfactory mm-hmm. explanation. I think it is a horrible, ugly thing that indeed occurred. Yeah. And it just stains our collective conscience. Yeah. But I don't think we get to explain it away. I don't think there's a list of check boxes Mm-mm. that if somebody has each of these boxes to check, that they will necessarily go down that route. Which is what the, the governor wanted that Blue Ribbon Commission to give him. Mm-hmm. Give me a list of things that we can look for that will all be early warning signs of this ever happening again. Absolutely. And I mean, now, 50 years later we can look back and see, okay, there are some indicators. Domestic violence is a strong indicator. Um, access to guns are a strong indicator of these kind of incidents. But it was Charles Whitman who really kind of popped the cherry on this as a form of violence in this country. He did. He exposed a kind of a, a level of carnage mm-hmm. that nobody was used to. Nobody had any reason to expect. No. I found the news footage of this incident, and it was also eerily familiar. We know what it looks like when we see crowds of frightened people running for their lives from a shooter. We've seen it over and over and over again. This was the exact same footage, but everybody had 60s haircuts and the cars were a lot cooler. Like, that was it. That was the only difference. We know what this looks like now. And I just wish we'd learned anything in the last 50 years. I mean, yeah, the the circumstances have changed Mm -hmm. and the logistics have changed. Um, I will say the response times oh, yeah. are much shorter. Yes. Um, you know, the, the risks and the damage is so much increased, it seems, in, in incidences. It's in escalation, the yeah. But people are so quick to act. Um, also, people intervene. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just, you know, that's the human will. And that's the fact that, you know, most people mm-hmm. suffer with their own their own bag of business, their own silent demons, right? and yet they don't. They don't snap. They mm-hmm. don't, you know, fall off the precipice. Yeah. And they do put themselves between harm and anyone. Hey. So uh, something was really compelling reading the um, stories. The um, where What was that um, that I sent you? The uh, Texas Monthly did yes. a really amazing history um, 35 years after the, mm-hmm. the tower shooting. Mm-hmm. And 
there are just so many phenomenal instances of people, you know, disregarding their own lives yeah. and safety to try to help others. Because that and was they, a thing. He would shoot people in the middle of a space mm-hmm. and then leave them there as right. bait and wait for other people to come in and try and help them. And then he would shoot whoever came to try and help. That's right. And there were people... Who nonetheless yeah. were, were reaching their arms out to pull other people that were warning people. And I read one story where um, a woman explains that a man and another woman ran off to help somebody. Mm-hmm. And she was like, wait, he's going to shoot at you. Mm-hmm. And they ran anyway to wrap a slip around and try right. to you know, stop the bleed and to help this wounded person. And she said that in that moment, she was learning who was just brave and who was a coward. And she said she felt like a coward because mm-hmm. she wasn't willing to run out there. Right. And honest to goodness, both decisions were valid. Absolutely. Like, 100%. Totally valid. Everybody's got their own their their own risks and rewards to, to weigh there. That's right. But it's just, it seems like in all situations where these horrible things, where we are exposed to the worst mm-hmm. of humanity, you see so many people that are just going to do everything they can to put themselves in a position to help somebody. Right. Um, I saw one, I think it was the, the pregnant lady who got shot and she's laying there bleeding and a girl came up to help her and she, she says, no, you have to go. You're going to get shot. He's going to shoot you too. And the girl laid down on the scorching hot pavement. Everybody who got shot and was laying down and playing dead got first and second degree burns from the pavement. It was so hot that day. The girl lays down on the pavement next to her and plays dead next to her and tries to help stop the bleeding. And she said that that was just the most beautiful act of humanity that she had ever seen. And that's the majority of people. This day had one bad, bad person in the middle of it. And then thousands of wonderful people who did everything they could to mitigate the damage one person committed. So like, it's really easy to get bogged down in the, Oh, humanity, humanity is cursed with this kind of level of violence. But we, we do need to remember the balance of that one bad dude, Thousands of good people. That's right. I agree with you that there are, you know, there are these indicators that we've learned over time that people that do violent things have probably have certain things in common. Right. But I just think about so many people that cope. Right. We all know and people who don't that do have that. been brutalized. We yeah. know people who have been victims of, di- hi- yeah, victims of domestic violence, perpetrators of domestic violence. That's right. Who and, don't do this. You know, um, my I was raised in a family with, all the guns everywhere. Hmm. And I, you know, I don't feel like having a gun makes you one way or the other. Right. Now, I do think we are now in a culture that that is a conversation that needs to be had right. early and often. Yeah. And this is just going to keep coming up. No, as I think it's, exploration of crime in Texas is just going to keep bringing this up. No, but it's, it's amazing, though, um, that it, <laughs> I love... That it was so Texas that mm-hmm. they were like, hey, do you need my scope? No, no, we're good. Thank you. <laughs> no, I've got a scope. Do you have this caliber of bullets? No, i got these other bullets, man. And people were sizing up like, I don't think you got what you need. I got a really fancy scope that's going to help, <laughs> you know? And like, the crowd at the end when they're waiting, you can look across this crowd and there's barrels of long guns popping up like weeds all across this crowd. Everybody's in a safety position. The guns are pointed at the air, <laughs> positioned on a hip, and... I personally, I have a gun phobia, Mm -hmm. so I would, like, just looking at that picture gave me itchy hives, Uh, but that was, 
it was the crowd. Yeah. It was just that's everybody out there was competent to handle their weapon. Well, and, I love the the Texas Monthly because there were people that were like, "What the fuck? Everybody has a rifle." Yeah, like, and then there were there was one that was like a visiting professor mm-hmm. who was just like. What is going on? Why does everybody have like, a gun? All of a sudden, I looked around, and every, there were guns everywhere. And then there were people that were like, yeah. Yeah. We, we, we all had guns. This is Texas. Like, Everybody's got a gun. I personally don't own a gun. There's no guns in my house. Yeah. But I know people who do. You know. Um, Perfectly lovely people. Yeah. I We don't, mm-hmm. because our children are impulse control problem having <laughs> Like, that's They're, legit the reason. Yeah, absolutely. They're sneaky as hell. Yeah. They would have already gotten into the guns by now. When they grow up, mm-hmm. and they are adult-like, you know. All that good stuff. And, and we have a gun safe that works with, like, fingerprint. <laughs> we might revisit the subject. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we... You know, but I was definitely, my dad was a gun yeah. collector, gun shooter. I've shot it's guns. Just, it's, <laughs> so, I think it's really easy... Uh, and it's definitely a factor to point at, oh, my God, Texas and your guns. Mm-hmm. Oh, Texas culture is full of guns. Texas culture is also full of thousands of people who put their lives on the line, who did everything they could to to save lives that day and lined up in 90 bajillion degree heat to donate blood and and did everything they could to help. So like, and not for nothing. And at the risk of sounding like the most crass person on the planet, he was a Florida man. <laughs> we do have to let's he was born in florida he was not he was a, he was a florida man if you google florida man you get some hits he was in fact a florida <laughs> but, man but, uh, and that's what happens that's why we need to build a wall <laughs> on florida wait build but a then, wall around florida but then disney but we'll, then, figure <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it there out. There will be gate checkpoints. You have to have the mouse ears on you have to, to like, be able to get You have to parachute in. <laughs> <Damn it>. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right then. Uh, thank y'all so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, uh, please wander over to whatever podcast platform you're listening on and maybe drop us a four or five star rating or a review. Um, we have heard uh, through Ye Old Internet Grapevine that uh, things like ratings and reviews are really helpful for podcasts. So uh, if you would do that, we'd sure appreciate you. As always, we are not um, law enforcement or investigators or journalists of any kind. So our sources for research for this podcast will be posted in links up on the blog, along with uh, pictures of the cast of characters involved. If you have any suggestions for stories that we should cover or questions for me or more likely for brilliant lawyer Stephanie, you can email us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com. You can also find us on all the social medias at OSWPodYall. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. And yeah, I think that's it. So uh, y'all have a good one and we'll see you next time. Bye.